Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Climate change means very directly that the places we've called home will not remain as they have been. Wildfire risk is changing. Flood risks are rising. In response, insurance companies are changing who and where they're willing to underwrite policies. And more fundamentally, the American way of housing is deeply, obviously unsustainable. So this season, the KQED podcast sold out takes on the changes that global warming is forcing on our housing system. What do we have to do? What can't we control? Can we make the changes our region needs before it's too late? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This show's really a show that's only possible because of so much collaboration between KQED teams. The theme, what housing should be in this region during this era of climate change, touches on so much of the work that we do here at the station. Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America is one of our deeply reported narrative podcasts. They collaborated with the Science Squad this past year to create this latest season, and we're bringing on those teams this morning for our collaboration with the science team, which we call Climate Fix. We'll hear some of the stories from Sold Out and talk with all of you about how climate is affecting your housing choices. Here in the studio, it's a KQED party. We're joined by Aaron Baldessari, KQED housing affordability reporter and host of Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we're joined by Ezra David Romero, KQED climate reporter. Welcome back, Ezra. Hey there. So, Aaron, set us up. Um, tell us about this latest season of Sold Out and how you came up with the idea. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've been thinking about this series for a couple of years now. I think uh, the idea originally emerged in early 2021, while the state was still reeling from, you know, several bad years of particularly devastating wildfires. And, you know, for a bunch of reasons, we decided not to do the series then. Um, Instead, we took a deep dive into the issue of evictions during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, really, it's been on our mind ever since. So you could say that this was a long time coming. And yeah, it's obviously still very relevant. Yeah. So what's the map of this season? What are the kind of episodes that are included? Yeah. You know, when we were putting the show together, we knew we really wanted to highlight different issues the state was facing. And so uh, each episode covers a different topic. Um, some of them, you know, we have an episode that looks at flooding, uh, how people are experiencing homelessness are, and how they're dealing with extreme weather how to reduce emissions from our homes, how we build our cities, and how we're really redefining risk, among others. 
Uh, and then, you know, there's also just this idea that, um, you know, just how, how do we redefine home in this age mm. of a of shifting climate? Yeah. Yeah. Vanessa Rancanos uh, reporting on the homelessness uh, and climate in Fresno is really, really revealing and also really difficult. You know, one of the things I think you that that sold out tries to get out in this season is how we create kind of community scale solutions, right? Like not necessarily yeah. individuals and not necessarily, you know, fixing global climate change, but that kind of in between space. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think all of the episodes really look at how neighbors, neighborhoods, communities at a, at a larger scale, kind of at the city or town level are coming together or not coming together. And, you know, I think Vanessa's episode in particular really touches upon this idea of who do we include in our definition of community and who do we prioritize when it comes to implementing some of the solutions that we that already exist that, you know, that we have available to us, you know, as we respond to to climate change. Yeah. We want to hear from you this morning. I mean, how is climate change affecting your housing decisions? Are you thinking about it actively when you think about where you're going to live, you know, in the region, in the state, in the country? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can join us on Twitter. You can join us on Instagram. You can join us in discussion on our Discord or KQED forum everywhere you might go to find us. Um, Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQED, remind us a little bit about the flood that happened in Pajaro, which is where your uh, story takes place. Yeah, in early March of this past, this year, I should say, uh, there's a big atmospheric river, like 200 miles wide, that parked over the central coast and San Francisco, all the way up to San Francisco. And it dropped about like 13 inches of rain or something like that in, in yeah. one go. Um, and so this overwhelmed the Pajaro River, which is down in Monterey, which borders Monterey and Santa Cruz counties. And at one point in the middle of the night, this levee breached on the Pajaro River um, mm-hmm. and the water started flowing into this farmland. And about a few, two or three miles downstream of this, of the levee breakage, there's this community called Pajaro. It's this um, unincorporated town of like a couple thousand people and... In the middle of the night, they got the evacuation warning. They had to go. A lot of them were already told to evacuate in the days prior, but some people chose to stay mm. um, because they had another uh, evacuation warning about a month earlier, um, and then nothing happened. So I think a lot of people were like, oh, this is like they cried wolf in some way. Yeah. you know. So Well, also there had been longstanding problems there, right? I mean, people knew. <clears throat> people know everywhere there's agricultural levies, right, that they could break. But, of course, if it doesn't happen for 20 years— you think like, well, why is it different this year? Yeah, most people like have levees in their lives every day and they don't even think about them. They're just kind of like piles of dirt. They're places where they run. You know, you might push your stroller on top of a levee um, and also might be like in your backyard. You don't even realize it. In a lot of these places, there's levees all over the all over California, all over the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Some of the most at risk are right here in the Bay Area, like in San Jose and, mm-hmm. and um, that Newark area, mm-hmm. Alameda. There's lots of levies right right in backyards that are hmm. sort of the most at risk or the moderate risk in California. Right. Um, you really focus on one family down there. Tell us about them. 
Yeah, when I got the assignment, I started reaching out to people in Pajaro and other flood areas because I'm a, I'm a sea level rise and flooding reporter. So I was like, where is the flooding happening? And I found this uh, young woman named Denia Scutia, and she's she was 17 when I met her. Hmm. And uh, her house got flooded. She woke up in the middle of the night. Hmm. Uh, she thought her, her Pomeranian lucky was peeing in her bed, and it wasn't. When she got out of bed, she like touched the ground and her all of her floor was wet and there was like a stream of water coming in from like the side of the room and then she described it as in like two to three minutes they were like her ankles were covered in water oh and then their entire house was um, flooded. Let's um should we listen to some of your tape from sure, yeah. uh, from down there? Let's listen. Uh, this is uh, Denia Scutia. This was your room. Yeah, I can't touch that anymore. The squishy sound is the squishy sound. Yeah, the squishy sound is still water being here and mud. I go to visit Denya and her family two weeks after the flood. The entire house is warm and stifling. The carpet's slick with mud. Her quinceanera photo still hangs on the living room wall. She and I stand in her dark purple room. The walls speak of a kid becoming an adult. We are in my room and... I love princesses and K-pop. But you're standing in mud. I'm standing in mud in my room. First, the water first came up up on that side. What's going through your mind now? Well, all I can think about is how I'm going to be able to help my parents throughout this. Mm. I mean, as was such a, like, evocative moment. I mean, the poster's still on the walls, mud on the floor. So... How did Denia end up trying to help her family? What what ended up happening to the family? Yeah, so Denia has a brother, a little sister, and a mom and a dad. And the family basically was forced out of their home because of the flood. The landlord wants to sell the property. And so they spent seven months looking for a new place to live and didn't find one, a permanent place to live. So a friend of a friend is letting them stay at a friend's at their house for the time being. She has to get rid of her dog. And I think the most heartbreaking thing for, for me with her was the first time we met, she said she got into UCLA. You know, mm-hmm. she's a senior and she was going mm-hmm. to college this fall. Mm-hmm. And throughout this entire process, there was the struggle of like if, if she's going to go or not. And she ended up choosing not to go to UCLA because she felt the burden was too much on her family. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to be there to support her family to yeah. like because they're in this like moment that changed their lives. Like floods don't just stop your house for living. It, it stops all these things in your life. Yeah. Yeah, you, you get to see in this story really the way that these kind of climate disruptions take unusual forms, you know, changes people's educational path, changes, um, you know, what, what they really think of as, yeah. their, as their home too, right? Because that town seemed like the kind of tight-knit community where lots of people are working in ag, lots of people know each other, you know. Um, can they get that community back? I think the question is if they want it or not. And I think when I've talked to them, I think her mom is more open to going back than than Denya is. Denya's like 17, 18 now. She has lived with climate impacts her whole life. She's a young climate activist. She's seen the writing on the walls that if I live near this levee for the rest of my life, like I'm going to live through this again because this area flooded 25 years ago mm-hmm. and it's flooded multiple times since that levee was built. Mm. And so... I think the answer is for her, no, she will never live there again. She kept repeating to say, like, I want to live in a house on a hill overlooking this place maybe, but not in this town. Oh, man. Aaron, I mean, this uh, story really embodies some of the key themes of of the podcast. Like, 
can we what do we have to do to maintain these places and you know as as i was saying maybe more importantly should we try to maintain these places as we once knew them yeah you know and i think ezra does a great job of tapping into this conversation you know one of the things that he looks at is really like what would it take to move this entire community to higher ground um and what you know, what would that look like politically and, and socially? Um, and, you know, obviously economically, it's, mm -hmm. it would be a huge cost, right? But when you think about Pajaro, it's just one community across California that are facing these same challenges, right? I mean, whether it's how we, you know, reconstructed our waterways uh, that, you know, are, you know, completely contradictory to like their natural state or, how we built in in you know wildland areas uh, right up in the fire's path. Um, so it's a question definitely that people across the state are facing. Yeah, yeah. I also uh, just want to say you know Pajaro still um, obviously as you can tell from Ezra's story still in a, in a really difficult place. Uh, there is a benefit called Pajaro Rising, which is uh, Thursday, November thirtieth, that um, be participating in with a whole bunch of folks. Uh, Jaime Cortez, Ingrid Rojas, uh, Contreras, uh, Rebecca Solnit, uh, for those who are who are interested in, in you know, if after you listen to Ezra's podcast, yeah. you think like, oh, man, we got to do something to help. Um, that's that's one way. Um, this is our regular collaboration with KQD Science Team. We call it Climate Fix. KQD Science Team has collaborated with the podcast here at the station Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America for their latest season, which explores how climate change is disrupting our concept of home. Joined by Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQD, and Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter and host of Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. We're going to get to fires, of course. We're going to get to insurance. How is climate affecting your housing decisions? Are you Have you moved? Are you thinking about moving? We'll get to some of your calls right after the break. The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on all of the social things. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more from our Climate Fix collaboration. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Climate Fix. It's our regular collaboration with KQED Science Team. They partnered with KQED Podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. We're joined by some of the folks from uh, that collaboration. Aaron Baldessari, who's our housing affordability reporter and host Sold Out, and Ezra David Romero, who's climate reporter uh, here at KQED. We'll be joined by Daniel Venn in just a few minutes. I want to get to a call. Um, Lewis in Sunnyvale, welcome. Hi, I just wanted to, I just wanted to call and just bring about my experience mm-hmm. um, with climate change. Um, I recently went to school in Las Vegas. I was born and raised in California, and you know it, the climate impacts those kind of moves as well, not just within the state, but in and out of state dynamics. Mm. And not only was it the drought and lack of water, but also the infrastructure in Las Vegas really didn't seem promising for improving and, and moving into the future, lack of mass transit and things like that. So all of those played an impact in uh, speeding up my move back to California and into the Bay Area because I really missed it here. Yeah. Well, welcome. Welcome back. Uh, Lewis. You know, uh, Aaron, obviously you end up covering this in Sold Out, right? This sort of core unsustainability of kind of a car-driven large single family home style American real estate development. Um, how do you, how do you try to address that in the series? Yeah. Um, my colleague, Aditi Banlamudi really dove into this issue in um, one of the episodes of sold out. And, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing. Cause when, you know, when you look at how, you know, what the American ideal for, for homes has been um, has really been striving toward this idea of, Single family homes, mm-hmm. you know, it's how we define uh, middle class success in many ways in this country. Um, and it just so happens that it's also, you know, uh, not great for the climate. Right. It as as homes get further away from the, the city core, people drive more. And, you know, we can't, uh, you know, experts say that we can't just switch to electric vehicles. That's not going to kind of get us to the climate reductions or the emissions, excuse me, carbon emission reductions that we need. We really need to rethink how we build cities. Um, And it, you know, there's a model for this. Um, You know, it's how we built cities before we had cars uh, that were walkable, Mm -hmm. uh, that were really kind of people centric. Um, But that's really difficult when, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of easier to do from scratch. But when you're taking a, you know, she looks at the city of San Jose, which, you know, more than 90% of its residential, uh, you know, the area designated for residential building is single family homes. Mm -hmm. When you take a city like that, that, you know, is very spread out, and then you try to sort of reverse engineer it to make it more walkable to, uh, you know, increase transit use, it's really difficult. um, Because, you know, (laughs) there's just something, you know, like, even if you build apartment buildings, and you still have to walk across a six lane road to get from one side of the street to the other, that's a challenge uh, for for pedestrians and how you feel in that city. So, um, you know, she looked at both, you know, how to encourage more building near transit, but also how do we make our neighborhoods a little bit more dense by mm-hmm. looking at, you know, what folks are doing with uh, accessory dwelling units or or what you might call, you know, backyard cottages or in-law units. Um, and, you know, thinking about, well, how do we take what we already have and, you know, just get more people to live in these existing neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing too, because people love 
living in a dense, walkable neighborhood. They're some of the most popular and expensive neighborhoods in America, yeah. and yet we can't seem to build them for some reason. Um, let's uh, yeah. <laughs> and there's well, there's, there's reasons. There's a whole bunch of challenge. Yeah, the, right, right. he gets into a lot of the reasons there, but yeah. I think it just goes back into that. You know, trying it's it's much easier to take an empty lot and put single family homes on it than it is to build within a neighborhood and try to kind of redesign a neighborhood that people are already living in, you know? We want to hear from all of you. How is climate affecting your housing decisions? Like, have you moved to a new home because of fire flood concerns, difficulty with insurance, all that kind of stuff? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. I'm going to go back to the phone here for a second. John in Burlingame. Welcome. Hi, thanks a lot. You know, I just wanted to share my housing decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, my first decision was to get as far away from the city as possible, primarily because of the skyrocketing drug use, the death, the crime, and just overall disgustingness of how cities in California look today. Climate change wasn't on my mind at all, primarily because climate change has not affected any real housing outside of what is already happening. Pajaro, for example, Mm -hmm. has been flooding for hundreds of years. Just read a Steinbeck novel. And so I reject the premise that climate change affects housing. I think this is a narrative and propaganda that is being forced by public. Um, I, you know, it's an interesting thing because um, we're going to talk about insurance later. These are not really, you know, insurers are not uh, driven by major uh, love for the planet. They're driven by like financial decisions. And I want to bring in uh, Danielle Venton, our science reporter uh, with KQD News. Um, when we look at how insurers are dealing with these problems, sure, Pajaro has flooded in the past. Um, sure, there have been fires in California in the past. But what do insurers say about how their actual bottom lines are affected by these changes that we're, we're seeing in the climate? I mean, globally, climate change is totally shaking the foundations of how insurance works. You know, you zoom in, there are also enormous problems in the state. Florida is having its own insurance crisis, but there are unique challenges in California as well. And that is primarily driven by wildfires. And there are some structural problems or some structural issues with how we how the state has regulated the insurance industry for about 30 years. Um, and that normal status quo has, you know, basically stopped working in this era hmm. of of massive fires. And, yeah. um, you know, and there is there's not a lot of question that those fires are made worse yeah. because Linked of climate to. change. Right, yeah. right. There's multiple reasons, but they're but they're being fueled by climate change. Yeah. So how did you try and get into this story? Because obviously it's a it's a big story to try and take on um, you know, wildfire risk and insurance. It is, but it is such an interesting subject because insurance is like the thing that makes our lives stable. It's the safety net that prevents our lives from getting derailed when something bad happens to us. That's true for health insurance or car insurance, but you know, really, really for home insurance. Um, if if your house was destroyed in a wildfire and you didn't have insurance, that kind of guarantees a slide into poverty. But having a functional insurance market is many people's first line of defense against hmm. climate change. 
So at the start of this reporting project, I kind of wanted to ask, like, what is insurance going to look like in 30 years, you know, if we follow Mm -hmm. these current trends? And I pretty quickly realized I couldn't even answer that question because Mm -hmm. the crisis is coming so much sooner than that. It's right Mm -hmm. now. And we need to make changes immediately if insurance is going to, there's going to be a healthy insurance market going forward. And so the the reason for that is is what like tell walk us through sort of how it's supposed to work and then why it's not working. <laughs> so ideally, you pay for risk being covered. It's kind of this gamble between you and an insurance company. They say, "Hey, this is where we think this is how risky your life is, and." You have to pay us this amount to, for us to reimburse you if something bad happens. We have made our lives so much more risky uh, because of climate change, because of how we build, because of where we build, because of not taking sooner action on climate change. And from an insurance company's perspective in the state, home insurance is not priced. The risk is not priced accurately in this state. Mm. And there's some reasons for that. Um, back in the 80s, voters passed a proposition that was designed to stem the skyrocketing cost of auto insurance and did a couple of things. Uh, Big rate increases had to be approved by the state. Um, Forward-looking models were not allowed. Hmm. Companies had to use backward-looking historical data Mm -hmm. to price future risk. And uh, advocates who didn't like the proposed rate increases could... um, could challenge those and could be reimbursed for the costs of doing that. And this is a unique thing in California. I mean, it's interesting because you can see why, uh, you know, consumer advocates would want to do such a thing, right? You can see them saying like, well, you know, insurance companies might try and take advantage of consumers by inflating the future risk uh, of climate change risk or wildfire risk and and thereby, you know, eke out some extra profit on the back of California homeowners. But what did it end up doing, right? I mean, it means that they they literally cannot price in any climate risk going right now as the market works right this minute. Right. So they can't um, look into the future and guess how bad climate risk is, you know, going to how bad climate change is going to be. Um, they also can't take into account if you use historical data, you can't kind of reward an area also for any fire mitigation hmm. work it does. Hmm. Um, and with these, I mean, the rates are a big are a big deal. Um, because it's so difficult for insurance companies to get rate increases of more than about 7%, um, their perspective is that the that their rates lag behind several years of where they really need to be. And surprisingly to me, in a state with so many climate risks, how, home insurance costs quite a bit less than in other states with similar yeah. climate risk. So from the insurance industry's perspective, I mean, they're they're just looking at the future yeah. and seeing um, bankruptcy possibly coming if they continue to do business in this state with how things are. So one response to this might be to say, well, you know what, there ought to be a public option. Like, let's just take the profit out of this, but create an insurance pool that takes that into account, which, in fact, the state of California has done, right? There's a there's this program called FAIR. Mm-hmm. But what has happened with that FAIR program, which is that public option? The FAIR plan is so interesting. It is this really well-intentioned solution where the 
um, there's an insurance, an insurer of last resort. Most states have some version of this. Mm-hmm. It's managed by the state, but funded by private insurance companies. And you pay a ton for coverage. You get really lousy coverage, but you can get some coverage if no other insurance companies will take you. Mm. In some areas, this is becoming the first insurer of, mm. of you know, the first resort. Yeah, the, rather the, the, than last the last resort, resort is the only resort. Yeah. And what's really scary about the fair plan is that if the – so the fair plan is undercapitalized. It is about one big disaster, one or two big disasters away from not having money to pay claims to its customers. And if that happens, then the established insurance market – would have to come in and pay those claims. But the way that the regulations work, those insurance companies can't save money for that possibility, and they can't pass that fee on to their customers. So they don't have the money saved for this. If that happened, yeah. there, would, there could be a ripple effect of those insurance companies leaving California, going bankrupt, canceling more plans, mm. and that could start a chain reaction of just really dire economic consequences. Yeah, I mean, the comparison that you uh, that you make in the, the podcast is to mortgage-backed securities, right? You'd essentially have these toxic assets rippling through California's home insurance market at a time when the home insurance market is already kind of balanced on, on unsteady ground. It's actually, a, I would recommend to people who are interested in this, and we'll, we'll move on. I won't detain our entire audience with more <laughs> questions about the innards of the insurance market, but listen listen to Danielle's episode in the Sold Out podcast. It goes really deep into this with Michael Wara, another former guest on the show. It's, it's just fascinating. Um, this is Climate Fix. It's our regular collaboration with KQED's science team. And of course, they've collaborated with KQED's housing team to create Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America. We're joined by Daniel Venton, science reporter at KQED News, Ezra David Romero, climate reporter here at KQED, and Aaron Baldessari, who does housing affordability for KQED and also hosts Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America. We'd love to hear uh, from you how climate is affecting your housing decisions, how you've maybe prepared your home for uh, a changing climate. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Instagram, Discord, threads, or KQED forum. Um, let's bring in uh, Brian in Sonoma County. Hey, Brian. Hi, good morning, uh, and thank you for taking my call. Yeah, tell us your story. Hi, I'm a housing developer in Sonoma County, and I'm actually building on a lot that burned down in the 2017 Tubbs fire. And I'm currently trying to make the exact type of housing that I always hear policymakers talk about, which is higher density, using non-flammable materials, using high efficiency, all electric appliances, car chargers, kind of all the good stuff that you would want in a climate resilient house. However, the the reality is that if I were to build a traditional wood-framed single-family home, it would be much easier and probably more profitable. So my question is, how do we change the economics to incentivize building the kind of climate-resilient housing that we need for the 21st century instead of just repeating the same kind of buildings we made in the 20th century? Mm. Brian, uh, great question. Good luck to you. Aaron Baldessari, what do you think? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think this is kind of the golden question, right? the state has been, you know, since 2016, 2017, passing a bunch of bills to try to 
you know, for cities to um, reduce the barriers to building uh, denser housing um, across the state. Um, and, you know, it's a challenge when I talk to policymakers in Sonoma, for, for instance, um, in Sonoma County, you know, they are also kind of grappling with having to build more housing, but also not wanting to build housing in areas that um, increase, you know, people's risk to wildfires. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's always kind of a delicate uh, needle to thread. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, single family homes are a desirable type of house that people want. And so, and single family homes have always been more profitable uh, or ha have fetched higher prices than apartments. Um, so, you know, when it comes to thinking about how do we, you know, incentivize this, I mean, I think that the state has been trying to look into this issue. But at the end of the day, a lot of those fees, a lot of the sort of red tape comes down to the local level. And that really, you know, um, that, you know, the, yeah. the rubber really hits the road at the local, you know, planning department and the permits that you have to pull, what fees you have to pay. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, that's a challenge across the state. And uh, that's a common thing that I hear uh, a lot, whether you're in Sonoma County or, or elsewhere in the state, that it is just really difficult because of the the regulation that comes with building housing. There's um there's that incredible moment in Aditi Banlamudi's reporting on this uh, in the series too, where you know she talks with this developer who says like, yeah, I'm trying to build this dense housing. There's going to be these towers. It's this going to be this whole transit village. And then they go visit the site and it's like, well, wait, it looks like you're building like townhomes here. And the guy's basically like, yeah, well, that's because even though the city of San Jose is trying to encourage this kind of building, you can't put denser housing uh, right up against. It can't directly abut single family housing. So there has to basically be like a line break between the the pre-existing neighborhood structures and uh, and the newer denser housing. And it just kind of it gets right at the way that we have created policies that both support this development, but also make it more difficult um, as well. Um, this is a Climate Fix. It's our regular collaboration with KQED's science team. We're talking about this season of KQED's podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, which explores how climate change is disrupting our concept of home. We're joined by Aaron Baldessari, who's the host of Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, also housing affordability reporter here at the station. And it's a KQED party. We also have Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQED, and Danielle Venton, science reporter. They just high-fived. Um, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We want to hear from you. We have a bunch of comments coming in. Um, Patrick just wants to note the uh, please comment on neglecting infrastructure. It's my understanding that the Pajaro River divides Monterey and Santa Cruz counties. One county invested in its levy and the other county did not. The result was a breach on the levy that was not uh, maintained. We'll get to more of those questions when we come back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Climate Fix, regular collab with KQED Science team, who themselves have teamed up with KQED podcast team to make Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America the new season. Joined by Aaron Baldessari, host of Sold Out, Ezra David Romero, climate reporter with KQED, and Daniel Venton, science reporter at KQED. Uh, before the break, Ezra, we were talking, I, I read the comment from one of our listeners yeah. about the infrastructure uh, and the two levees uh, there in Pajaro. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the history of that levee system goes back to when it was created. It was created um, like in the 40s or something like that, and it didn't have – they didn't build it for the water it could receive hmm. from it, from its get-go. So since the beginning of that levee, it's been in a position where it can flood, hmm. and it's flooded many times hmm. there. And there is an environmental justice. People there call it an issue of environmental injustice, right, that you have this community that lives there. That was kind of pushed there because they're lower income people, farm workers, people like that. And so it's an environmental justice issue for many people. And there is it's going to cost like half a billion dollars to even fix this levy. And that work is going on right now. They rushed to do some of that work, um, the initial work earlier in the past few months to get it ready for the storms that are, you know, we just had mm-hmm. and we could get worse in, in, the, in the coming months. But. This is going to take 10 years to build. 10 years. 10 years. So you're going to have a community at risk for the next 10 years. And that levy is supposed to protect this community from what they call a one in 100 year flood. That's like the, you know, a a big flood that could happen in, in any given year. But with climate change, climate scientists say those floods of the future are supposed to be way worse than that one in 100. Mm -hmm. So there's this tension of like, should we build this thing to this level or should we build it to a higher level? Mm -hmm. And the engineers I spoke with said, we just need to build something now. Hmm. Otherwise, it's going to take us another two to five years to even get those plans up. And then it will be like 15 to 20 years before you have a new levy that protects. At which point the baseline has changed even more. Yeah. So it's it's just like this constant back and forth. But they are trying to address this issue. And the Army Corps of Engineers has admitted to it. Yeah. Um, Aaron Baldessari, you did something you don't normally do um, in this uh, season of the podcast, which is you tell you kind of your own story and you're grappling with your decisions about where to live and, and why you should do it. Um, t- tell me about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of an interesting experience. It was very personal. Uh, so I grew up in Nevada County, which is in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, um, a place that you know, I like to describe as kind of hippie redneck, uh, where a healthy distress of government intervention is kind of the air that folks breathe. Uh, so just noting that uh, for our other caller who, yeah, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, this, so we, um, my partner also grew up in this area and, you know, we always thought about moving there one day, but uh, that question was, was really accelerated after his mom passed away and he inherited her house there. Um, we have a young daughter and we wanted her to be able to experience this place where we both have deep roots, but um, she passed away in the summer of 2020. And if you'll remember, uh, mm-hmm. that was also the year that we had the orange sky day. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so that, you know, it just really brought home kind of, um, you know, it just seemed like a different calculation now, given the realities mm -hmm. of the way that climate change is impacting California, but in particular this year, Nevada foothills. Uh, and, you know, just whether it would be safe for us to move there, uh, whether we should move there. Um, so that was my motivation of looking mm -hmm. at Nevada County specifically. But, you know, after doing some reporting there, I realized that it also happened to be kind of a perfect uh, case study, a, a perfect place to explore this question. Uh, like, what does it mean to live in wildland areas in this era that we're experiencing of increasingly destructive wildfires? I thought the other reason your story is so powerful is... You, know, you described the way that your partner and his mom like worked on the house, the way they painted the tiles, like all these things that we invest in our homes that make them not just a place to live, but also this kind of part of our identities. And so even though you might want to even, let's not say you do, but even though you may want to leave, it's hard because you have so many memories that are bound up uh, in into this place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think during the course of this reporting, I was actually talking to Danielle and she was like, you know, why would you stay there? And it's like, you know, I can't imagine, you know, us ever selling that house mm. because, you know, Barbara designed the house for her retirement. It's a very unique house. Mm. She put a ton of her own labor into it. It was really kind of the culmination of her life's work. Um, and she built it you know, for herself, but also with Jesse in mind. And he had a, a you know, he was very involved in all the decision making and, and, and designing the house. And, you know, we go up there every month. Uh, we did that when she was alive. We continue to do that now to, you know, maintain the property to help her around the house. So, you know, it's, it really represents more than a house. It's like years of investment and also just sort of the physical manifestation of her life, but life, also yeah. kind of like this, this hope for the future too. I mean, it was a really, it was a real investment, not just in her, but in him. Hmm. You know, one of the things that the Nevada County story gets to as well is the way that people have been trying to live in more sustainable community-minded ways up there. Can you talk a little bit about the, the folks who tried to build a different kind of life? Yeah. Um, so um, folks up in Nevada County obviously have been dealing with wildfires for a long time. Um, you know, my first memory of growing up there was evacuating from a wildfire. It's not certainly not anything new under the sun. I think what has changed, obviously, and we can get into that later, is, you know, the, the frequency of fires and um, kind of the scale of destruction that we've seen in recent years. Um, but there are lots of ways that people uh, have been trying to live differently up there. Um, I focus on one, a, you know, a couple of different things. So I don't, I, you can stop me <laughs> if I'm like <laughs> too long. But uh, one particular community is kind of a unique one. It was founded in the 1970s. I hoped you were going to talk about the Gary Snyder community. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> off a road called Jackass Flats by, by Gary Snyder, counterculture poet. Um, him and Allen Ginsberg and Kriyananda and Richard Baker bought 100 acres um, there. And, and a whole bunch of people came up um, during that time. And they all kind of started out as homesteaders. And so they've never been connected to the electric utility grid. And folks, uh, you know, so they, they, you know, were early adopters of solar. They often have, you know, water tanks that, you know, use gravity to, mm -hmm. to supply their uh, homes with water. Um, and, you know, 
some folks use you know propane, but they're you know kind of trying to wean off of that. Uh, but they also have partnered with the federal government to kind of co-manage the surrounding public lands, which is pretty unique. Um, it was the first time that that had happened uh, for a, a forest land area in the country. And, um, uh, you know, so they basically are, you know, just became very invested in not just how to make their home safer, but also how to kind of improve the uh, the surrounding public forests. Um, and it's, you know, it wasn't a relationship that, you know, uh, where everything happened all at once. It took decades mm. of continued relationship building, of continued, uh, you know, investment from this neighborhood group to really make that happen. And the results today, you know, are when you walk through there, it, it just feels different to mm. be in uh, what's, what's called the Inamum Forest, uh, which is a, a Nisanan word for um ponderosa pine mm. um and you know the sunlight filters through so it just feels brighter in there it doesn't feel quite mm. as as dark um you can walk through pretty easily because the brush is kept pretty low to the ground uh but that took you know uh, a lot of investment it took a lot of thinning of the forest um prescribed burns and uh but you, you know but it yeah. but you can see it you know when you're there you know it's it was interesting too though Aaron there was a kind of bittersweetness to that community because they had done all they could you know for 50 years they've been trying to live a more sustainable lifestyle and yet they also were watching the flora change they were watching the oaks replace the pines as sort of uh the the climate made a particular environment work better for for other kinds of trees yeah. so it's not like you could even with all of that work, you couldn't really freeze that home place as it once yeah. was, which I, I thought was. Yeah, I I had a conversation with a woman up there, Sam Henricks, who sits on the board of the uh, North San Juan Fire Protection District, which is the the fire you know the local fire department mm -hmm. for that area, and um, she is also a mom and has um, a six year old, and so you know, during the, the course of his life, she's seen some of the most destructive wildfires mm. in California. And she lives three miles down a gravel road surrounded by forest. And so she, you know, she's just hyper aware of their risk. And she's watched the pine trees uh, die on her property. She said she took out over 120 trees um, because they were turning brown from bark beetle, which is mm. um, mm -hmm. a, a native uh, insect to the area. But it, it, um, thrives in hotter weather so it overproduces and kills kills the pine trees um and so she you know she just talked about how she wasn't feeling you know for me when i was talking to her you know the pine trees the the mixed conifers what they say is really what defines the sierra nevadas for me it's mm. you know there's something about the smell about um just seeing these towering kind of trees all around you that really gives that area just a, a really unique uh, look and a unique beauty. Um, and she was just saying, you know, she had to kind of come to terms with that. And she's not feeling mm. precious about those pine trees anymore. Instead, she's really focused on, okay, how do we replant some of the seedlings upslope where it's cooler so that they have a better chance of surviving? Mm. What is doing really well on this property now? It's going to look different in the future. We're going to have more oak trees, buckeyes, you know, it's just, it's mm -hmm. going to be a different thing. And, um, and, and she's okay with that. Okay. Yeah. 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 
Um, let oh yeah, Danielle. Yeah, I th- I think that there is a theme in almost in all of the episodes of a lot of the difficulties that we're experiencing in this kind of clash between how we've always had our homes and you know what we got used to and this coming era of climate change is the more we try to just maintain the status quo the more problems we have because mm-hmm. things are changing the people and the communities that are best adapting are those who understand that stuff is going to change and so we need to figure out how to kind of move around that and embrace that and and you know Mm-hmm. Live with it and make it work as well as we yeah. can, instead of all, and just, instead of just trying to keep things as they were in the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, we have uh, we have some interesting uh, comments here. I'm going to get to uh, Lisa writes in to say we live in the Willow Glen neighborhood in San Jose and are close to retirement age. We discuss weekly if and where we want to move. Even with climate change, it's hard to beat the climate in this area, especially when considered along with the proximity to both ocean and mountain lifestyles. That said, our next move will likely be dictated in large part by which area of the country will be least affected by the changing climate so that we're able to leave something more enduring to our children. And yes, I acknowledge we're fortunate to have this choice while most of the world uh, does not. I mean, I'll just throw this um, maybe to to Ezra and, and Danielle. I mean, the Bay Area, particularly the inner Bay Area, still remains one of the places that kind of is sort of least affected by climate change aside from maybe sea level rise like how would you how would you try and do that math Ezra? I think it depends on where you live in the bay area I mean I this past year I've covered like major floods across the inner bay you know that have mm-hmm. flooded whole communities mm-hmm. um we've also we also have like red skies at times from all mm-hmm. the smoke um we don't really have ex- as much extreme heat here and things like that so the bay area you know we're still this like temperate climate compared to a lot of other places. I know San Jose is a lot warmer. It's like living in the Central Valley at yeah. times. You know, it's, it can be pretty hot down there. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah I just yeah. add, um, I talked to someone who um, was from Nevada County and moved or had lived in Nevada County for a long time and moved uh, because of the wildfires. And thinking of that same thing, they looked at climate maps mm-hmm. and thinking about where they could live and decided that you know, where California wasn't going to work for them. um, But they moved to Michigan and um, which is one of the sort of climate refuge states uh, in the country. And then they got the orange sky days that Mm -hmm. folks, the summer experienced in the Northeast and, you know, the Midwest. And, you know, the guy said to me, you know, it doesn't matter where you go, climate change is going to catch up with you. So, you know, something mm-hmm. to think about, I guess. <laughs> um, Danielle, uh, then a couple um, insurance comments. I'll uh, read them both and you can figure out how, what you'd like to say. Uh, Wayne writes, my understanding is for decades, insurance companies milked California to pay for tornado and hurricane damage in other states. With current climate change, the wildfires are now having to pay for the cow. Another listener writes, someone on your show. Uh, said uh, that insurers can raise rates 7% per year. My home insurance went up 50% from 2000 to 3000 in 2022, and this year went up almost another 1000 Why isn't PG&E covering these rate increases? The major California fires were started by defective PG&E equipment. So... One of the challenges of talking about insurance is that it's such a complex thing. <laughs> and so to try to... Um, mm-hmm. To try to distill it down, you end up leaving out some of the detail. So the 7% increases is statewide, and that gets allocated to different consumers in different different ways. So 
one consumer might have their insurance double, whereas you know my insurance hasn't gone up um, mm. in the last couple years. So so those increases are are at the statewide level rather than at individual levels, mm. um, and insurance is is just regulated differently than public utilities. Public mm-hmm. utilities have to offer services in the state. Mm-hmm. And there's there's you know as far as I understand there's not a connection of legal liability for mm. that would make PG&E have to pay a company like Allstate for the the risk for the losses that they're incurring. Yeah. Yeah. Um Aaron, what do you want people to take away from uh from sold out as we come to the end of the show here? Um You know, I think that as much as there are no easy solutions, there are solutions. Um, And so when we think about what it takes to adapt, um, it, we do, there are a lot of options for us out there. And I think one of the things that um, I, I realized in doing this reporting was that some of the most effective solutions were really when communities, neighborhoods, um, kind of the, mm-hmm. the smaller communities were banding together to to look at what they could do in their own little sphere. And um, that was really inspiring to me. Yeah. Ezra, did you have any uh, another takeaway? Yeah, I think what I've been thinking about, especially as I wrote, wrote all this, is that, you know, we often think we're going to change nature. But like the world, the earth is alive and it has preeminence on its own. And that like as we face climate change, like we should adapt to nature instead of like thinking we can do the opposite. And I think that's what in all of our stories, we looked at the people who are chained or trying to live with nature are actually having a, a better, a better go at adapting to climate change and people who are trying to reject it altogether. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting too. Uh, tell that to the uh, Corps of Engineers, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're trying, they're trying. We've done shows on that too. Um, this has been Climate Fix. It's our regular collaboration with the KQED science team. They collaborated with KQED podcast sold out rethinking housing in America to explore how climate change has disrupted our concept of home. Get wherever you get podcasts, search sold out rethinking housing in America. You can find it. Um, We've been joined by Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter and host of Sold Out. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. Thank you. We've also been joined by Danielle Venton, science reporter here at KQED. Well, thank you. Thanks, Alexis. And Ezra David Romero, climate reporter here at KQED. Thanks, Alexis. Uh, go check it out. It's good. There's some hope in it, I promise. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.